0: Hello, good evening, good day everybody. Hope you're doing well and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show episode uh, 121. Today we discuss uh, geopolitics, history, current affairs and so on. Uh, and uh, as always, before we get into it, let me see who all is there with us and greet you all. I can see Animish, R2Futu, Aditya, Bro, Amar, Harshit, Karan, Bonfire, Pithviraj, Aryan, Rajveer, Arman, Sohani, Goblet Fire, Somnath, Crazy Brain, Azminor, Komal, Himanshu, Vishal, Shri Hari, Anirudh, Mudit, Jatin, Durga, Karan, GK, Om Parik, Vladimir Adityanath, Sujay, Shivang, Krodh, Batman, Revenant, Akai, Dungar, Singh Sinjohan, Bimla, Piu, Aditya, Lakshai, Priyanshi, Mr. Stalin, Mahesh, Sahil Khan, Darshan, Ganpat, Chaitanya, Akash Rathor, Kuldeep, Jatin, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. Great to see you all. And uh, with that said, let us get into the questions for tonight. And what is question number one? Question number one is... uh, multiple questions that I've received about this uh, particular issue. Nishant says what are your views on China threatening Nancy Pelosi that they will shoot down her aircraft if she visits Taiwan? And Rohit says China threatened the US over Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Do you think a small conflict can happen? Republicans also support the Biden government on this issue? Yeah. So what's happening is that Nancy Pelosi is right now as we speak on her way to Asia, or maybe she must have already reached some place in Asia, so she's on a tour of, I believe, several Asian destinations, several Asian nations. And uh, a visit to Taiwan was planned. It was on the card. So I'm not sure if it's if she's still going ahead with that. But uh, the indications were there. It was announced that she would visit the island of Taiwan. And that uh, brought forth a very strong uh, response from China. They said that the U.S. is undermining the so-called one China policy that the two nations have agreed to. And it, it, the Chinese are saying it's a red line that we cannot allow anyone to cross. If uh, this happens, then there will be consequences, very severe, very strong consequences. Essentially, they are threatening war. They even went to the extent of saying that if Nancy Pelosi um, reaches Taiwan, they could even shoot her plane down and any other aircraft, fighter aircraft, etc., that are accompanying her. And they have been conducting live firing exercises in the, straight, uh, in the region near Taiwan of the Chinese coast. They are massing uh, military equipment, Personnel, vehicles, etc., uh, close to the Taiwan Strait, etc. So and and the, they have been uh, upping the ante when it comes to their incursions into Taiwanese, into so-called Taiwanese airspace and all that. The, so the Chinese have made it extremely clear in public repeatedly that this is a red line that the US cannot cross. If the US crosses this red line, then China will essentially go to war. They will shoot. They will possibly shoot down the aircraft of Nancy Pelosi, any other accompanying aircraft. And that essentially is an act of war if you do that. So they have staked their credibility on this issue, right? Uh, The thing is this, the Chinese Communist Party cannot afford to be seen as weak in front of their own population, their own public. Mr. Xi Jinping cannot afford to be seen as weak and, and conciliatory to the U.S because their entire plank their entire basis for legitimacy is that uh, is is nationalism that china is going to rise and that is the that is the trade off for the chinese public that you accept our hegemony you accept our dictatorship our one party rule our imperial rule over over the chinese public in exchange for us making china a great nation again that is the well unsaid unspoken contract and therefore the chinese communist party and mr xi jinping cannot under any circumstances afford to appear weak in front of the public yeah and we know that uh, various american officials have been routinely visiting taiwan yeah uh, generals military personnel etc but nancy pelosi is a very high ranking uh, us government official so that is a whole different uh, ball game when it comes to her visit to taiwan so um, they have uh, made it very clear that they would essentially go to war uh, and 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 uh, Shoot down the aircraft if the if Nancy Pelosi is to visit. So the question now is, what is Nancy Pelosi going to do? She would have reached some part of Asia by now, I suppose. Yeah, uh, Will she go ahead with the Taiwan visit? It looks like she is kind of backing down from that. The US government seems to be backing down from that. Um, maybe it was just a way for the US to test how far the Chinese are willing to go. And they have gorged the response. And most likely, I would say that Nancy Pelosi may not go ahead with this visit to Taiwan. Uh, the U.S. doesn't need to escalate this matter further. They have things pretty much under control. Taiwan is essentially under their control. They have the island chain, the first island chain, the second island chain. They own The U.S. owns Japan, right? Japan is a U.S. colony. South Korea is a U.S. colony. Then you have Guam. in the the South Pacific region, which is is uh, another island that's under U.S. control. It's a major naval and uh, air force base. Australia also is under U.S. control. It's a U.S. colony. They have 15,000 troops permanently stationed there on a rotation basis, the Americans on Australian soil, and so on. So um, they don't need to push China too far. But if they back down, if the Americans back down, which I think they would be likely to do, then it would... What will be the consequence of that? That will be definitely a loss of a certain amount of prestige for the Americans, right? That they blinked first, that they uh, that they caved in to Chinese threats. That is certainly going to be a certain amount of loss of prestige and loss of credibility, which is more important. Prestige is okay, but credibility is more important. The U.S. is the guarantor of security, of security to South Korea, to Japan, to Australia, to Taiwan and if the us falls back under threats then uh, nations like south korea nations like japan even nations like australia will ask some very hard questions to themselves that can we trust the americans when it comes to defending us because that's the that's the deal right the us is going is, is, the us guarantees the national security of of uh, taiwan and south korea and japan and even australia and new zealand so now these nations will ask themselves very hard questions if the US back to, backs down from this uh, visit to Taiwan. And as we can see, these are all indications of the fact that the US dominance and hegemony in the world is slowly, slowly, step by step, inch by inch, eroding away. Yeah, 20 years ago, the Americans would not have given in to Chinese threats. It, it, the, the, even the thought would not have been conceivable 20 years ago. But today, Especially, at least in this region, the Americans would are most likely to step back. So that's what I think will happen. It's something that's in progress right now. I most likely think that uh, Nancy Pelosi will most likely not visit Taiwan. If she does visit Taiwan, there could be a significant escalation. Once the first shots are fired, you never know up to what extent things can escalate. And I don't think the Americans uh, want that. The thing is, are the chinese actually willing to go to war is it, i mean they will obviously have done a risk uh, a cost benefit analysis a risk analysis can they afford to go to war with the us over this over this matter the chinese economy is is intricately tied to the american economy china is not a resource independent nation china de- depends on energy security from from the from the gulf region yes the Persian Gulf and, and so on. There are various choke points, the Malacca choke point, the Hormuz, the, the Strait of Hormuz and so on, which can be choked off by the Americans, even by certain, certain other nations, which may be in that region, yeah, as we know. Uh, China would would suffer significantly under U.S. sanctions if the Americans sanction China. Uh, China imports, I think, millions of tons of protein from the U.S., you know, uh, meat, i think their entire pro- protein uh, they depend on on american meat for their protein needs china and and much more so uh china is a nation that is liable to suffer significantly if the americans decide to impose sanctions on them so the americans may not even have to go to war with china if the chinese uh, do such an action they may just impose sanctions on china all kinds of sanctions the way they have done on the on the russians And and Russia is doing well, China won't do that well. So there are all these things to consider and considering all that, I think even the Chinese may be bluffing to some extent, but they can't afford to bluff too far because the Chinese public will then stop supporting the CCP and and Mr. Xi Jinping, and they can't afford to have that happen. So most likely considering all these things, I think Nancy Pelosi is unlikely to visit Taiwan The Americans will most likely back off from this, and that will be that will be seen as a loss of loss of prestige, and and, uh, people will slowly lose confidence in uh, in the U.S. ability to defend nations from Chinese uh, uh, Chinese bullying and threats. So yeah, that's what I think is the situation. Let's see. Let's let's wait and watch. Watch. You never know how things are going to be, but uh, that's what I think will most likely happen. Okay, question number two. Raghav says, okay, this question again. <laughs> I think I answer this question every week, don't I? Hmm? Russia, is not, Russia is failing in Ukraine. Russia has not done anything. Russia is, uh, and so on and so forth. So let's, so let's pretend this is another question. I wish somebody would ask me the, a different question. What are the lessons from the Ukraine war? especially for a nation like India. I'm not going to answer this question. This is a question I answer every single week. I'm not going to repeat myself over and over again. Let's imagine that the question was, what are the lessons for for India from the Ukraine war, from the Ukraine conflict? Because the conflict began in, in, in February, 24 February, I believe, this year, 2022. It's almost August, yeah, five months or so. And now we have sufficient information, sufficient data to draw some lessons from this conflict, right? So what are the lessons for India from the Ukraine conflict? Because every nation, every major nation is watching this uh, war, this conflict very closely and learning and, and drawing inferences and lessons from what's happening there. So what are the lessons? First of all, witness how Russia has been able to withstand American sanctions why has russia been able to withstand us sanctions and why is russia doing r- remarkably well the economy is doing just fine yeah uh, the ruble is, is the strongest currency most likely in the whole world right now the ruble has appreciated against the us dollar the ruble has gone even even f- further ahead than what it where it was in february right so the reason why the russian economy has not been destroyed on the other hand, it's doing well. Why is it so? It's because Russia is essentially an autarky. What's an autarky? A nation that's self-sufficient in most major uh, resources. Agriculture. Russia has is self-sufficient in agriculture, in food resources. It doesn't need to import food, products, grains, etc. from anywhere. It produces all the food it needs. That's number one. Secondly, Russia is has energy self-sufficiency. Russia doesn't need to import oil, gas, or whatever else from anywhere else. Russia is able to produce all of that on its own soil, on its own territory. So Russia has energy security. it's The energy security is assured. Thirdly, um, so that's number one. There is energy security and then, then there is uh, agriculture. Then there are things like Russia has a strong industrial base. Uh, it's one of the major producers of things like cement, steel, and things like that. And these are the real foundations of a nation's GDP. If you look at the various GDPs of the world, you can see China is so far ahead, US is so far ahead, but a lot of the calculations that go into these, these GDP numbers depend on, well, services and goods that don't really produce anything. You know? The real measure of a nation's GDP is, is agriculture, energy, uh, industrial output, uh, steel, cement, all the things, essentially the things that went into the calculations of GDP numbers in the 1920s and 1930s. That's what really matters. If you are self-sufficient in those metrics, then nobody can destroy your nation or your economy. Yeah. And so that's what's happening. Russia is doing very well. These sanctions have not worked. Uh, it's, it's Russia is essentially untouched, and then they have been able to link their. They, they have decided to link their currency to gold, to the to the uh, price of gold because they have sufficient reserves of gold, right? So that is also something that's worked in their favor, and that's why the Russian uh, ruble is doing so well because it essentially is a proxy for actual gold, right? Uh, it, you're guaranteed to get get gold in exchange for rubles if you ask for it. So that's the reason why the Russians are doing well. So that is the economic thing. So, does India have these uh, these uh, security measures? Are we self sufficient? Is India self sufficient in from in the from the terms of from the perspective of uh, food security, agriculture? I think India imports much. I mean, not all, not a great deal, but a significant amount of uh, its uh, food grains, etc., are imported from other places, mainly from maybe from Africa, from other places. So that is something that India should look into, food security energy security india needs to india is is dependent on the gulf nations mostly for energy security so in case you are dependent on other nations you need to have strategic reserves that can last for months not weeks yeah it's not enough to have strategic oil reserves that will last you for 3 weeks or 4 weeks you need to have strategic reserves that will last you for 12 months the whole nation you need to build that capacity so that's another lesson that india needs to learn and uh, industry is important. All these things, India needs to look into. Now, when it comes to the military factor, these are the economic factors that that we've discussed. What about the military? Well, there are lots of lessons to learn from the war, from, from the military perspective. First of all, you need lots and lots of missiles. 50 missiles, 100 missiles, 200 missiles is simply not enough. Thus far, in the past four, five, six months, five months, the Russians have used up more than 3,000, 4,000 cruise missiles. That's a huge number of missiles. And they still have lots more. This is a war that's dragging on. It is dragging on on purpose. The um, Russians wanted to drag on, right? They could have taken over Ukraine and smashed the 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 place in three weeks if they wanted, but they have chosen to fight a certain kind of war. And there must be a good reason for that. And they have have fired more than 3,000 missiles by now cruise missiles, and not just one kind of missile, multiple types of missiles with different ranges and different uh, purposes, right? India has a one-trick pony, the BrahMos missile. Of course, we have different kinds of BrahMos missiles. Uh, We have a 290 kilometer range, a 700 kilometer range, and allegedly other ranges as well. And we now have different variants of the BrahMos also, you know, the BrahMos NG, which may or may not be developed. I don't know what the situation is, but India needs to have a significantly large stock of cruise missiles and not just one type of missile, multiple types of missiles. India needs to get its act together, the nearby missile needs to be developed, other variants need to be developed and you need numbers. Quantity has a quality of its own. You need thousands of missiles in your, in your stock. You need to have a stock of thousands of missiles, not just a couple of hundred missiles. That's not, that is simply not enough. You need enormous amounts of arms and ammunition in reserve enough to last you several months not enough, not just for two weeks you need enormous stocks of ammunition bullets shells artillery shells you need large number of artillery guns right we we are still depending on the 1980s boforce guns as far as i know we need more we need lots and lots of those howitzers so, and, and other artillery uh, weapons so The lessons of the Russian war are very clear, you need numbers, quantity is very important, and then you need to invest in something like the multiple MLRS rocket system. Right? Uh, Let me show you what that looks like. What, What does that look like? What is MLRS? This is what MLRS looks like. So this is, these are various MLRS systems, you need to be able to fire enormous salvos of these rockets multiple launch rocket system mlrs india has its own pinaka system we need large numbers of these because these are extremely extremely useful extremely handy this is when you when you launch enormous numbers of rockets in one go in in salvos that is is a game changer when it comes to artillery warfare and you know uh, any kind of war You also need drones. Drones have been a game changer in this war, not just for uh, reconnaissance and detection purposes, but also for firing missiles from the sky undetected. You need various kinds of drones, drones that can loiter for hours and observe with with high precision what's happening on the ground without being detected. And also drones that can fire missiles on, on ground targets or that can... Pinpoint the location of moving ground targets so that they can be fired upon using MLRS or various other uh, weapons. You need these things. You need uh, kamikaze drones, suicide drones, drones that will destroy themselves and destroy the target. You need all of this. This is the 21st century. You cannot go into warfare with a 20th century mindset. So these are some of the lessons India needs to learn urgently from the Ukraine conflict. Right? So that is the question I was hoping somebody would ask. But anyway... I once said it. Onikit says, a cricketer destroyed Pakistan, which was already in disarray and a comedian actor is destroying the entire Ukraine. Well, yes and no. The cricketer, Mr. Khan, Mr. Imran Khan was never really in power. He was prime minister only in name. We know who really runs the country. They always need some puppet, some figurehead to put in front of the public so that the people can blame that person. So Imran Khan decided to be that person. Imran Khan was never in power. He never had any decision-making uh, ability. The real decisions were always being made by the Pakistan army. And even today, whoever is in, is the prime minister today, it is, I think it is Shabhad Sharif, Sharif. It doesn't matter who is the prime minister of Pakistan. The prime minister is a puppet. Okay? So he doesn't matter. He or He or she doesn't matter. The Pakistani prime minister has no real power whatsoever. So Mr. Imran Khan did not destroy Pakistan. Whoever is destroying Pakistan has always been destroying Pakistan, which is the Pakistani army and the ISI. When it comes to the comedian actor Zelensky, who is destroying Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky is not in power. He is just president of whatever, president, right? In name. He's president in name. He is not in control of what's happening. There was a coup in Ukraine, the Maidan coup, which was engineered by the United States, right? And the, the democratically elected president of Ukraine was ousted in this illegal, unconstitutional coup. And and who was it? I don't even remember who was the person who was put in place. And after that person, it was Zelensky who has been appointed or put in place as the president. There's no democracy there. It looks like democracy when you have all these elections. But the entire basis is undemocratic and unconstitutional. A coup so uh, Mr. Zelensky is not in power in Ukraine he has no real decision making ability he is simply a puppet of a foreign power that's all he is so understand this Mr. Imran Khan was never in power in Pakistan and Mr. Zelensky is not truly in power he appears to be in power there is, he is doing all these photo shoots for Vogue and all that He's just an actor he is an actor who is acting as the president right, that's what it is so you have to look through these things this is how they fool you Many of these people who are in power are not really in power. They are, they are only appointed. They are, they are presidents and prime ministers in name, especially in nations that are controlled by outside forces. There are so many of these. yeah. And the real power is somewhere else. The real power lies somewhere else. And these presidents and prime ministers have no ability to say no to the, the ones who really control them. So that's how it is. Okay, this is by Subhita Devi. Mr. David Reich, research, says Indians have yamnaya admixture. This is the main narrative, but Scandinavian geneticist published a paper that says India do not have yamnaya admixture. Dr. David Reich also claims R1 ways, Z93, subclade of R1A 4,000 years, common ancestor. It's French gen- geneticist published a paper which says it is 15,000 years, and so on and so forth, so on and so forth. Long, long, long thing. Mm-hmm. What the, the main question, what is the main question? Okay, whatever is the main question, it's a very long uh, wall of text. I'm not going to go into that. The question is how old is R1A, how old is this uh, Z93 subclade and so on. So we Indians love complexity. We love to get into the details. So what is this entire matter? It's about the Aryan invasion migration uh, question. What is the origin of the Indian people? Are most Indians descendants of foreign invaders, so called Aryans? That was the original thesis, the original theory, which was propounded in the 19th 19th century by Max Muller and various other foreign uh, alleged historians and so on, based on various uh, claims and considerations on biblical chronology and all that. So initially it was claimed by foreigners that Indians, especially North Indians and Western Indians and other Indians as well, are descendants of white-skinned foreign invaders who came in from Eastern Europe. Aryans. They brought in the Sanskrit language. They brought in Hinduism. So Hinduism and Sanskrit are invasive forces. They are the the language and the culture of oppressors and colonizers. Right? So that was the claim. Then later it became very clear there is absolutely zero archaeological evidence of any invasion whatsoever. So then the story was changed and they said it was not an invasion, it was a migration. They slowly came in and migrated, and that's how they, and, and yet the eventual end result was the same. They imposed their foreign language, Sanskrit, and their foreign culture and religion, Hinduism, and the evil caste system on the hapless native Dravidians, who are the original natives of India, right? So that is the migration claim. Now, even, even there, there is no evidence for a migration, because when there's a migration, there is a change in the archeolog- archaeological record. So now they are trying to base their claims on, they are now saying there are multiple small waves of migrations and there is a genetic uh, imprint that trickles into India and so on and so forth. So they are continuously changing the story, changing the story. And now that Indians have caught on to the genetic thing, now they are making it complicated. So not just, so the one of the primary uh, uh, genetic lineages, patrilineal lineages in India is the R1A1A lineage. It is called R1A1A. Its parent is the R1A lineage. The parent of R1A is the R1 lineage. The parent of R1 is the R lineage and so on and so forth. It all dates back to the F lineage, which is ancestral to more than 90% of all males, non-African males who are alive today. And the F lineage originated in India about 65-70,000 years ago. And the oldest non-African matrilineal lineages also originated in India around this time, M and N, right? So the question is, so so R1A has been mischaracterized as the Aryan gene. And the thing about R1A is that it's found in high concentrations in the Indian subcontinent and also all the way in Europe. So that's why it seems like, you know, it could have come in from Europe. There's a very significant concentration of the R1A1A imprint, In Eastern Europe, in in Northern Europe, in Poland, in Germany, in the Slavic regions, etc. Then in India, in parts of Iran, there's a whole continuum, right? So that's why they say that, you know, there was a migration. And now there's the the Yamnaya story, the Yamnaya angle as well. About 5,000 years ago, there was a massive invasion of brutal horse-riding warrior conquerors from the East into Europe, which totally changed the genetic uh, demographics of Europe. So the older genetic demographics of Europe disappeared. The male lineages disappeared entirely, and they were replaced by these Eastern Yamnaya male lineages. Which means these invaders killed off all the men, and essentially took their women, and and had offspring with them. That's what happened, right? And this happened very rapidly. This was an unstoppable invasion. They have been called the most brutal, genocidal invaders Mm -hmm. of all time in human history, these Yamnaya people. The question is, who are these Yamnaya people? And then there is the question of the steppe ancestry which comes into India. So there there is obviously affinity between uh, the Indian genetic lineages and various uh, genetic lineages which are identified as belonging to the Central Asian, Central Eurasian steppe region and so on so what is the truth what is the where does all of this originate right that's the question and then they complicate matters by saying there are there are various subclades of r1a like r1az93 and so on and so forth so what's happening so my my point is very simple instead of going deeper and deeper into smaller and smaller details you need to look at the bigger picture the question is very simple what is the origin of the r1a lineage what is the origin where did it originate we know that it originated between fifteen and 25,000 years before today, right? And it appears that it originated in the Indian subcontinent. Now, we need more data. More data is forthcoming soon. I, I am informed by very reliable and well-placed sources that a new paper is going to be published this year by Indian scientists. I uh, I know because I've spoken with uh, Dr. Nidhajai. I'm, I'm in contact with him. So uh, most likely this year... A new paper is going to be published, which is going to demonstrate and prove that the R1A genetic lineage originates in the Indian subcontinent. How do you know a genetic lineage originates in a certain place? You know it when that region, geographical region, has the highest diversity of that particular genetic lineage. Wherever you have the highest diversity is always going to be the origin place of that lineage. And so let's have a little patience Let's wait for a few months more. Let the paper be published. We all know that it originates in India. This is going to be just the corroboration of, of what we already know. Other papers have already been published that show that they demonstrate that the R1A uh, lineages are the oldest in India. But let's wait for this new paper to come in with lots of more data, which will prove, prove beyond any doubt that R1A originates in India. And some preparation is already happening for this. Uh, Let me share something with you all. I think I've shown this before, but let's, let's bring this up once again. So one of the major proponents of the invasion hypothesis, invasion myth, has been Dr. David Reich. David Reich. So David Reich wrote a book in which he has made these claims, and he has also hired a minion an Indian minion called Tony Joseph who wrote a book of his own about, uh, what, what is it called? The I don't know what it's called. It makes all these weird claims, all these fictitious claims that Indians originated uh, outside India, you know, in the steppe and, and all that. So this is a very recent lecture that Dr. David Reich gave. It was on the 12th of July. Today is the 31st of July, 2022. This lecture was about 19 days ago yeah what does dr david drag say in this in this lecture so let me just read it out it's just a couple of paragraphs so bear with me uh, so the title is the genetic history of the southern arc a bridge between west asia and europe what does it say we present an integrative genetic history of the southern arc an area divided geographically between west asia and europe but which we define as spanning the culturally entangled regions of Anatolia and its neighbors in both Europe and West Asia, Cyprus, Armenia, Iraq and Iran. We employ a new analytical framework to blah, 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 blah. And so on, so forth, a very detailed thing. Our comprehensive sampling shows that Anatolia received hardly any genetic input from Europe or the Eurasian steppe, from the Chalcol- Chalcolithic to the Iron Age. This contrasts with southeastern Europe and Armenia, which were impacted by major gene flow from Yamnaya steppe pastoralists. And there's another thing here. A striking signal of steppe migration in the southern arc is evident in Armenia and northwest Iran, where admixture with Yamnaya patrilineal descendants occurred coinciding with the 3rd millennium BC displacement from the steppe itself. And so on. Uh, what else does it say? Okay, so the in- impermeability of Anatolia to exogenous migration contrasts with our finding that the Yamnaya had two distinct gene flows, both from West Asia, suggesting that the Indo-Anatolian language family originated in the eastern wing of the southern arc, and the step served only as a secondary staging area of Indo-European language dispersal. This is all very complicated. But you know what he is trying to say, Mr. Da- Dr. David Reich? He is, tra- he is now saying he has changed his entire tune. He is saying that the step served only as a secondary staging area for Indo-European language dispersal. The Indo-Anatolian language family originated in the eastern wing of the southern arc. What does it mean? He is saying it originated around Iran. Wait for a few months, he's going to say it originated further east from Iran. Iran is a part of the Indian subcontinent. It is, it is geographically connected to the Indian subcontinent. It is an extension of the Indian subcontinent. We all know what is the origin of the Iranian Persian people. We know that. So now, see, the tune has changed. He is now saying, he is now admitting that the Indo-Anatolian language family originated in the eastern wing of the southern Arc, which is in Iran, essentially, he is saying. And the steppe, the steppe ancestry served only as a secondary staging area of Indo-European language dispersal, which means that there was something before the step ancestry. Now, the only question now, which needs to be answered, it is what is the ancestry of the step ancestors, these so-called step step genes, where did they come from, he is clearly saying that the step is not where it originated. It's all going to circle back to India, wait for a few months. So that's what I will say about this. We can go into lots of small details about R1A, Z93, and how old is that? That is not important. That is not important at all. We need to look at what is the origin of R and R1, and R1A and R1B. The Yamnaya were R1B, descendants of R1. What is the origin of R1A? What is the origin of R1? And what is the origin of R? And I can guarantee... Wait for some time, wait for a few months, wait for a few years, by this decade, by the time this decade is out, it will be proven conclusively that R itself originates in the Indian subcontinent. This is going to be the end of the Aryan invasion, migration, tourism, picnic theory once and for all. It's just a matter of time. We can already see the wheels in motion. Even Dr. David Reich is now admitting this all originates in, in this incredibly long-winded, complicated, convoluted fashion, he's admitting. He's admitting that it all originated. He's now claiming Iran. Earlier, they used to claim it was the steppe, the Central Asian, the Eurasian steppe. Now they are saying it's Iran. A few months or a few years down the line, they are going to admit that it came from the Indian subcontinent, from India. It's going to happen. And these disposable minions like Tony Joseph will be discarded. You know, tony joseph i i mean when his book came out i read the entire book i wrote a detailed review article which was really scathing but it was factual okay i pointed out all the holes in the claims that he has made you can read it just google it right google abhijit chawda tony joseph review uh, so i wrote this article then we had an interaction on twitter i invited him for a factual polite debate you know on youtube And let's discuss your book. Let's discuss your book and let's go through the evidence and see what makes sense. He refused. He ran away. He wrote this book, but he doesn't have the confidence to defend it. So That tells you everything you need to know about this entire matter. Okay, moving on. Priyansh says, I read a post on Twitter by, okay, by whoever, about a skull found in the Narmada belt, which is dated to about 1.5 to 2.5 lakh years. It is being said to challenge the out-of-Africa theory. Your thoughts. Okay, let's take a look at the Narmada man thing. Um, So, one second, let me uh, share my screen with you all. So, this is the, I believe, the original paper. This, is, this dates back to 1991, is the Narmada hominid an hominid and Indian Homo erectus. And if you look at the abstract, it says that it suggests, it exhibits a broader suite of morphological and mensural characteristics suggesting affinities with early Homo sapiens fossils uh, from Asia, Europe, and Africa, and so on and so forth. So, so it seems to claim that it is something like Homo sapiens, right? So that's what this paper from 1991 says. Well, let's look at a subsequent paper. It's not enough to look at just one paper. Yeah, we have to look at other papers and what other people have said. So this is about, this is from 1990, what's the year? I think it's from 1998. Yeah, it's 1998. Antiquity of the Narmada Homo erectus, the early man of India. So over here, it says it is Homo erectus, not Homo sapiens. It says that, right? Let's take a look at another publication, a much more recent publication. What does it say say now? This is from the Smithsonian Museum. This is up to date. Uh, It says it's about 300,000 years old and it is Homo erectus. So now today, today in the 21st century, in 2022, the consensus is very clear. It is Homo erectus, not Homo sapiens. All right? Uh, in 1991, the claim was made that it was Homo sapiens. Later on, the consensus was reached that it is not quite Homo sapiens, it's actually Homo erectus. Homo erectus is, is an older, more archaic version of the Homo uh, various Homo species, right? It's an older species. It's not Homo sapiens. And we know that Homo erectus was present in, in Asia, in Eurasia, much before Homo sapiens... Uh, Entered Eurasia about seventy or so thousand years ago, so the out of Africa migration is the out of Africa is the migration of Homo sapiens, the latest migration. Before that, we had Homo erectus in Asia. We know that we have uh, we have found it in uh, evidence of this in various parts of Asia, including in Indonesia and other places. So it looks like the Narmada human being was Homo erectus, not Homo sapiens. That seems to be the consensus among all the scientists who have looked into this. So uh, I don't know who has tweeted this I mean, uh, and what claims have been made. I've not seen the tweet, so I'm not going to comment about that. But from whatever I am able to see here, I am obviously not an expert in this. I can understand what scientists write. I have not done the research myself. So the consensus is that this is not Homo sapiens, it's Homo erectus. Now, obviously, things can change. Even scientists can be mistaken. We know what scientists have been claiming about the about the iron invasion migration thing. They are wrong and they know they are wrong. Now they are changing the tune. So it is possible that in the future, somebody may re-examine the the remains and maybe a different uh, conclusion could be drawn. But from all the evidence that we have as of today, it is Homo erectus, not Homo sapiens. And if it is Homo erectus, it does not challenge the out-of-Africa theory. All right, that's all I can say about this. Naman Chauhan says, I was going through an article about Chauhans having cultural similarities with the Hungarian paganism and their culture. They drew similarities between the Chahamanas, the Chauhans of Shakambari and the white Huns, Kula Devi, etc. Is there any real possible connection between, between the two or is this a mere speculation? So I don't know which article you're referring to. I've not seen the article. Uh, the Huns did not have any Devis. So who are the Huns we're referring to? The Huns are the Hephthalites, the the Shweta Hunas, who invaded India in the first half of the first millennium AD. Around the time that the Gupta Empire was at its its peak, the Hunas started coming in from Central Asia. They took over parts of Gandhar, Western India. Then they started trying to invade India, India itself, you know, mainland India itself. They were repulsed time and again by the Gupta Emperors, especially by Skanda Gupta. The great defender of India. After the death of Skandagupta, the, honas, the white Ahunas were, the Shweta honas were able to start conquering parts of India. And they entered India, they ruled various parts of India for some time. They harmoniously adopted Indian culture, except for one or two kings. Uh, Mihirakula was a particularly nasty king. He was an atheist and he he, he oppressed all Indians, Buddhists, Hindus, all, yeah if you want to draw a distinction between Buddhism and Hinduism. But most Huna kings assimilated into Indian culture. They became proper Indians. They all became Hindus, essentially, right? Uh, we had the so- so-called uh, Turk Shahis, the, the Hindu Shahis, the Kabul Shahis, who were Huns, who ruled in northwestern India, present-day Afghanistan, Gandhar. And they defended India from the Turkic invasions, the, the later Turkic invasions. And so, yeah, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. So what was the culture of these Hunnic people? It was uh, what is now called Tengrism. So the Huns and the Mongols have the same ancestry, the same origin. The Mongolians practice today. Today, if you look at Mongolian culture, it's a beautiful syncretic culture, see, a syncretic mix of Indian culture and Tengrism. It has elements of Tengrism, the original culture of Mongolia, and elements of Buddhism and Hinduism. And you see a beautiful mixture of that in Mongolia today. The uh, the Huns, they also practice the same religion, Tengrism. Now most people will tell you that Tengrism is a monotheistic religion. That is absolute nonsense. Tengarism is a polytheistic religion. The the, the two major deities are the sky father Tengri and the earth mother Umai. And there are a whole host of other divinities. There is ancestor worship, there is spirit worship, there is nature worship. All of that is present in Tengarism. Right? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it was a polytheistic culture. It is a polytheistic culture, wherever it still exists. And the Huns, because they were polytheists, they were able to assimilate, assimilate very easily into Indian culture, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever you want to call it. Because it's all polytheistic cultures are very similar. Now, uh, so that's the similarity that you can talk about. Uh, the Huns did not have Kuladevis. They did not have Kuladevis. So that if 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 a claim of that sort has been made, I've, I I have seen no evidence of that. In Tengrism, there is no concept of kuldevis and all that. And when it comes to the Rajputs, the Chahamanas, other, other Rajputs, they are descendants of. So who are the Rajputs? The Chahamanas of Shakambari, the Chauhans are Rajputs, right? It's a Rajput clan. It's not a tribe. It's a clan. It's a lineage. So there are a number of. Uh, Uh, such lineages, which are now called Rajput lineages or clans. Who are the Rajputs? The Rajputs are the warrior class, but not the entire warrior class. The Rajputs were the aristocracy, the ruling class among the warriors, among the so-called Kshatriyas, right? That's what they were. So these are ancient lineages that date back to Vedic times. There could be a little bit of influx from Huns or whatever. When the Huns came and ruled over parts of India for a small period of time, they did not come in enormous numbers, in, in millions. Their popul- their numbers were dwarfed by the Indian population. They were just a small drop of water into the ocean that is was Indian population. So, if there is any genetic con- genetic contribution to the Indian gene pool from Huns, it is minimal, negligible, maybe zero point one percent or so. And it's possible that some of them, after they assimilated into Indian culture and started ruling various parts of India, they would have claimed Rajput origin or Rajput lineages because, as we know, parts. Most of Central Asia was Indian in nature before the Turkic invasions, right? Uttara Madra, Uttara Kuru. Kuru was the eastern part, north, east of the Himalayas. And Uttara Madra was the western part of Central Asia. And these were all dynasties that, that had Indian origins, right? Uh, so the Huns, it's very conceivable that they would have claimed Indian origin, Indian lineages, and they would have said that we are Rajputs. And maybe the Indian public may have accepted it and maybe they slowly assimilated into some of the Rajput lineages. We know that some of the Huns who ruled over certain parts of India uh, took up Indian Rajput surnames. We know that. And maybe they would have intermarried among these uh, various ruling aristocratic clans. It's centrally possible. So that's the extent to which there could be uh, intermingling or whatever but when it comes to the Chau- Chauhans they don't have Hunnic origin they may have a little bit, 1% maybe half a percent of Hunnic ancestry, just a little bit because Huns may have intermarried among them, but that's n- nothing more than that so uh, so yeah th- there are some claims that Rajputs have Scythian origins and Hunnic origins uh, that uh, there could be just a little bit of veracity to that the Rajputs could have maybe half a percent, one percent of Greek ancestry, maybe one percent Scythian ancestry, maybe three percent Kushan ancestry. But overall, these are Indian lineages that date back to very, very deep antiquity, to the Vedic age itself. Okay, so that's what it is. Attila the Hun says, The Chinese never wrote anything kind about the Xiongnu or the Huns at any frame of time the romans also never wrote anything kind about the huns and even today in brussels in the european union there is hungarophobia i wish you i wish you very much i wish you and your people much good and wealth. thank you very much so this seems to be somebody from hungary well it's nice to hear from from you sir uh, it is true that the chinese never wrote anything good about the huns about the xiongnu so the the ancestors of the so called huns are the xiongnu which who originated in the northern regions of what is now China, what is present-day China, which was never historically part of China. So if you go... if you Okay, I have not shown the map today, which is shocking. What am I doing? I'm losing my touch. I need to show the map. Where's the map? Yes, we need to look at the map when we discuss these issues. So this is the map. This is the world. Now let's go north of India. If you go north of, let's say, Manipur, just keep going north, keep going north. You will reach Mongolia, right? And this region, Mongolia, and north of Mongolia, the Siberian region, this is the original homeland of the uh, Mongolian and, and Hunnic people, and the Turkic peoples. And their ancestors were called by the Chinese as the Xiongnu. Okay? So the Chinese did not, obviously the Chinese did not like them. The Chinese wanted to suppress them, and they, they did that successfully for centuries. Eventually there was a backlash in the form of the great Genghis Khan, Right. So, uh, the Chinese regarded the Xiongnu, the Huns, as barbarians. Yeah. And that's why they built the so-called Great Wall of China. And that is the actual extent of the Chinese nation. Right. That That is the real border of China. The Great Wall of China. So the purpose of this Great Wall was to keep the unwashed, uncivilized barbarians out, the Yu out. And you are right, sir, the Chinese never wrote any anything good about the Huns, about the Shonu. The Romans also never wrote anything good about the Huns. At the same time that the white Huns, the Shweta Hunas, were trying to invade India, at the very same time, they were trying to uh, well, to, to invade uh, the Roman Empire. So, So that was... That is what was going on, right? Uh, the Huns were trying to invade Rome and India at the very same time. So that's how widespread they were. There were nomadic people; they were spread all across Eurasia, and they were invading Rome and India at the same time. The Romans never wrote. Obviously, they never wrote anything good about the Huns. The Huns were very successful in their <laughs> in their uh, military campaign against the Romans. Uh, so, the Romans never wrote anything good about the Huns. They, they also regarded the Huns as barbarians. India fought the Huns, but eventually accepted them. And the Huns assimilated into the Indian population. So, you will never see anything bad written about the Huns from the Indian perspective. Apart from one king called Mihir which no one liked, whom, whom no one liked. He was, uh, well, a nasty piece of work. He was an atheist and he oppressed uh, various Buddhist... Monks and monasteries. He oppressed the Hindus and Brahmins as well. He oppressed everybody. He was a cruel guy. But most other Hunnic rulers were, well, they were good. They did not, uh, you know, they did not write, do anything that w- would necessitate uh, Indians to write anything bad about them. One of the Hunnic kings who ruled in Gandhar, his name was Narendra Ditya Kengela. He is most likely the king who commissioned the construction of the great. Statues of the Buddha in the Bamiyan region of Gandhar, present-day Afghanistan. So, as you can see, they adopted Indian culture wholeheartedly. They became Indians. They married among Indians. They and and so that's how it was. So, India treated the Huns well, and uh, India accepted the Huns with open open arms. And today, uh, you don't see any Huns in India because they've all assimilated. Right, and when it comes to the European Union, yes, there is a significant Hungarophobic <laughs> uh sentiment in the EU. Hungary is a nation whose uh, well that descends from the Hunnic invaders of Europe uh, that dates back about a thousand or so years ago. The name Attila is quite common in in Hungary. Attila was one of the great Hunnic uh, conquerors. Yes, so. uh Yes, the nation of Hungary is descended from the Hunnic conquerors of Europe, of various parts of Europe. They eventually uh, adopted European customs. They became Christians and all that. But there is this this sense in Europe that Hungarians are are still kind of outsiders. The way the Europeans regard Russia, there is a very similar attitude towards Hungary. If you look at Western Europe, they consider Russia to be a part of the East. They do not consider Russia to be a European nation or culture. It's an Eastern culture. It's it's non-European from the perspective of the Western European peoples. And the same attitude exists towards Hungary as well. So there is an attitude of of racism of of othering the Russians and the Hungarians. So yeah, that there, there is there is indeed a fact. There is indeed a fact, and it's it's I'm glad that somebody is pointing this out. So so my dear friend, I also wish you and your people success and prosperity and good health and wealth as well. Siddharth says, I have been wondering that if the British Empire did not have India under the British Raj during World War II, would the Allied forces have lost to the the Axis? Since India was a huge source of resources and supplies for the war, if this hypothetical scenario did happen, how would it play out? When it comes to the two world wars, the world war one and world war two world war one starts in 1914 and world war two ends in 1945 so this was about a 30 year period of war with a brief period of, of apparent peace inter inter interbellum interbellum so from my perspective this the world war one and world war two were a continuation of the same conflict the great european tribal war that's what it was. It was a European tribal conflict and its roots go go back to the 19th century and even, even before that actually. So uh, that's what it was. Now, in World War I, the British had the Indian, the British Indian army at their, at their disposal. Nearly 2 million Indian soldiers. I think it's 1.7 or 1.8 officially. Million Indian soldiers participated in the war and fought for the British, and died for the British in this war. That's 17 or 18 lakh Indian soldiers who fought for a foreign power on various parts of Europe and Africa as well. Yeah, in World War I. The British would not have survived World War I if it was not for the brave Indian soldiers. And the Indian soldiers were the best of the lot. The Germans were frightened of the Indian soldiers. The Indian soldiers fought so many incredible battles, the Battle of Haifa in Israel and various other battles. It was because of the Indian soldiers that the British were able to prevail at the end in World War One. The same goes for, and, and when it comes to World War I, who was it that recruited Indian soldiers to fight for the British? One of the major recruiters was Sergeant Major Mohandas Gandhi, who actively recruited Indians to fight for the British. Violence. Bang, bang, bang. Mr. Gandhi. Yeah? Interesting. In World War II, which is the second half of this conflict of the European tribal war. I think about two and a half million Indian soldiers were made to fight for the British. That's 25 lakh. Without the contribution of the Indian soldiers, the the allies would not have won World War II or World War World War I or World War II. And they also had the incredible, enormous amount of resources that they could pillage from India. Right? So had India not been part of the British Empire, if they, had the British not been in control and occupation of India, they would not have been able to prevail in World War I or World War II. That is a fact. And many British uh, high-ranking generals, etc., have spoken about this, have written about this. That were it not for the Indian soldiers, the British would not have survived these wars. So that's a fact. Undeniable fact. Okay, Kaustub says, mm-hmm. I have talked to a few people living in Balochistan, pa- Pakistan. They said that in 1947, the Khan of Kalat offered Nehru to accede, to, Balochistan, to accede Balochistan to India, but Mr. Nehru rejected this mm-hmm. offer. Is it true? If yes, it's another blunder by the great Chachaji. It is indeed true. Uh, let's take a look at what evidence we have regarding this. Do we have, you know, this has been written about lots of times, but uh, somehow people are not aware of this. Here's what happened I'm just showing you one article. You will find lots of other articles if you will bother to do your own research. So, this is from the Sunday Guardian Nehru's Balochistan blooper was as, as disastrous as his Himalayan blunder. And this is a book that's been written about this. So if you read this article, I'm not going to read it out for you. It's a very lengthy article. This is just one piece of evidence. You will see lots of other articles which which discuss this issue threadbare. What happened is that, um, uh, let's just take a look at this. So the Khan of Khalat in 1946 was a discussion with the top Congress leadership on the fate of Balochistan. One of his representatives met Abdul Abul Kalam Azad, the then Congress president that the Maulana questioned the very idea of Balochistan as an independent nation. Uh, If a report by a British, Britain-based think tank, the Foreign Policy Center is to be believed, Nehru returned the accession paper signed by the Khan of Kalat in 1947. See, it's very clear. The Khan of Kalat, which this Kalat thing, this region was most of Balochistan. He had two options. He did not wish to accede to Pakistan. A, he wanted to accede to India and if that did not work, he wanted to remain independent. He signed the document, the accession document that every other princely state signed to become part of India. He signed it, he sent it to India, to Nehru. And Nehru sent it back. Nehru sent it back. Balochistan wanted to be a part of India. Mr. Nehru rejected that. I don't know why he would do such a thing. Mr. Nehru is, is, is I mean... I don't even know what to say about the great, magnificent, magnanimous, incredible Mr. Nehru, a a truly great man. So yes, it is indeed true that the Khan of Kalat signed the accession papers, the document of accession to India. It was sent to Mr. Nehru and Mr. Nehru sent it back. Right. So yes, this is indeed a fact. And this is just one article. There are books written about this. There are lots of other articles written about this. There is a lot of documentary evidence for this. And uh, yeah, so it is indeed a fact that Balochistan could and should have been a part of India. But Mr. Nehru did not allow that to happen. The same way he did not allow Gwadar to become a part of India. It was offered to India for free by the Sultan of Oman. He refused. Nepal wanted to rejoin India. The king of Nepal requested Mr. Nehru to allow Nepal to become again a part of India. Mr. Nehru rejected that. He rejected, uh, <laughs> he gave away the great, the magnificent Kabo Valley, a part of Manipur for centuries. He gave it away to Burma. He gave it away to, to Burma for free. Yeah. And uh, he gave away the Cocoa Islands to Burma. So many other things. I, I mean, you could have a series of. Do- of episodes just about Mr. Nehru and his and his incredible deeds for India. Rushal says, what are your thoughts on the nuclear bombing of Japan in 1945 at the end of World War II? Was it justified? The nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and then Nagasaki, these represented horrific war crimes. These are war crimes. They nuked civilians. They nuked unarmed men, women and children. You have not seen the photographs of the aftermath. Those photographs are now very hard to find on Google. You know, those are horrific images. You don't want to see them. People whose skin has melted away and who are still alive. Hundreds, thousands of people like that. You know, suffering and who are gonna die eventually. But they're suffering, the incredible agony. Their skin has melted away, their, their clothes have melted into the skin, their flesh. This is what the Americans did in Hiroshima, and that's what they did in Nagasaki. The ones who died immediately were lucky. And even today, you have all these genetic defects because of the uh, the the effects of the radiation that lingered on in this region, in these two cities, in these regions. These were unpardonable war crimes. You cannot do such a thing to civilians. Similarly, the firebombing of the German city of Dresden by the Americans was an unpardonable war crime. Once again, you can look, look up on Google image search what happened in that city. You know, I don't know how many thousands of tons of explosives, incendiary bombs were dropped on the city full of innocent civilians. And and see what what happened there. These are war crimes. You know, that's how it is in war. The ones who win, they decide who's the the criminals and who are not. The greatest crime is to lose a war. You know? If you win, you can make anything happen. So that's how it was. So my views are very clear. These are war crimes that have never been punished. That's it. and just to circle back about this, it doesn't mean that the Japanese what they did was not was, was right. They also, the Japanese also, the Germans also did unpardonable war crimes. No doubt about that. We know what the Nazis did to the Jews and to, and to the gypsies, to the Romani people, genocide. So that is obviously unpardonable. What the British did in India was, was genocide of a sig- much higher order, right? That has never been punished. That's not even recognized today. Um, What the Japanese did in in Eastern Asia, Southeast Asia, in China, in Nanjing, is unpardonable. So everybody committed war crimes. But unfortunately, for some reason, the focus is only on the Nazi war crimes and the the Japanese war crimes. What about the war crimes perpetrated by the Allies, by the Canadians, which no one knows about, by the British, by the Americans? No one talks about that. That also is part of history. And what they did is nothing but war crimes. Nuking a civilian population in an entire city is is a war crime of the highest magnitude. One of the worst things you can do. And that's just what what they did. And they got away with it scot-free. Gaurav Gosavi says, why do we admire Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose so much? The INA, in spite of being brave, courageous, were thoroughly decimated, and so on and so forth. Even after his death, which is in, in quotation marks, the INA members were jailed, suffered terrible consequences. A leader leads his people to defeat in two battles, allows his people to be used cannon fodder, does nothing to ensure his people's safety after death. Would he be still called a great leader? P.S. I love and respect and admire Netaji from the bottom of my heart. I'm just playing the devil's advocate. Sorry if it hurts anybody's feeling. Okay, a good question. We should certainly examine this this question. Why do we admire Netaji Sebastian Bose despite the fact that he did not succeed? What was his objective? Let's understand this. What was the objective of Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose? His objective was to liberate India from British occupation through military means. That was his objective. He tried to to play to to uh, go through the traditional political route. He he was a member of the Congress. He was ejected from the Congress by Mohandas Gandhi, who who engineered a political coup against against Netaji. And then Netaji realized that uh, the political uh, route will not work and that's why he went and explored other options the military option he raised an army etc so his objective was to liberate India from genocidal British occupation through military means and we know that he did not succeed he failed right we know that he failed so why do we still admire him the reason we admire him is because he had skin in the game He was there on the front lines facing the bullets. He put his life on the line repeatedly for the sake of his nation. He put his life on the line. He did not care whether he lived or died. He was willing to die for the nation. He led his soldiers from the front. And he was even willing to put his reputation to the stake. He was willing to stake his reputation. He did not care whether his reputation would be tarnished as long as, as he was able to serve his nation. And he has been called all kinds of things by indian politicians uh, the the indian communists called netaji this is not my words it's the in the words of the indian communist party various parties they called him a running dog of the japanese that's what they called him various other parties and uh, other politicians in other quarters have called him um, they've called him a war criminal because he was on the side of the axis powers germany and japan he has been called all kinds of things people have tried to destroy his reputation he was fine with that. He did not care what happened to his reputation, what happened to his life, as long as he was able to serve the nation. There are certain politicians who sit somewhere far away and have, have people die for them, right? So they will, the, the so-called armchair generals, mm-hmm. who will draw lines on maps, and those lines on, on the map maps will cause hundreds of thousands of sold, uh, soldiers to die. But they will not be there in the thick of the battle, right? Mm-hmm. There are, most of these so-called leaders are like that. Netaji was not like that. He was there. He was there facing the bullets, facing the bullets, right? He was there. So there is so much today's leaders can learn from somebody like like him. If you look at today's politicians, I would say 99% of them are, are, well, they leave a lot to be desired. Less, maybe 1% of politicians have some of the qualities that Netaji Chandra Bose had. Yes, he failed and leaders must succeed. So yes, he failed. But you know what? We admire people who, who fail gloriously because they tried their best. You cannot say the same about the so-called other leaders of India, the other so-called leaders of India from the 19, from, from, from the 1930s, 1940s, etc. How many hours, days, weeks did Muhammad Ali Jinnah spend in a British jail? Can someone answer this question? How many days did Mr. Jinnah spend in a British jail? Mr. Gandhi spent a significant amount of time in, in five-star jails, yes, palaces. But at least he, you can say he was in jail. You know, he, he would have a morning walk, he would have his goat milk, and he would then re- relax and write something and write letters and all that. Mr. Gandhi spent that sort of quality jail time. It was like a vacation for him. Mr. Nehru also spent time in jail, but it was again quality vacation time. Mr. Jinnah did not spend a single day in jail. Mr. Bose faced bullets. He was in a submarine. He had to escape from house arrest, disguised as as somebody else. He had to escape through northern India, through Gandhar, he had to go through Central Asia, all the way to Russia, I believe. Then to Germany. From Germany, he had to go all the way to Japan, all in the service of the nation. He did everything he could. He dedicated his whole life to the nation. He was willing to die for the nation. He was willing to have his reputation ruined for the nation. These are the reasons we admire him for. Show me another Indian leader, successful or not, who had even 10% of Netaji's qualities. You won't find anyone like that. So that is the reason why we admire him. Yes, yes, it's true he failed. He failed because he did not have the resources that the, that the empire had at its disposal. Right? But he tried. And most likely he knew that he may fail he still tried so that's why we admire him so that is why he is one of the one of the few leaders of the 20th century and later from india that we actually can truly admire okay okay this question again uh, pawan says telugu is older than tamil why do you people always ignore telugu gautam says uh, sanskrit has ancient dravidian linguistic substratum in it Tamil has a lot of Sanskrit loan words in it. So no need of fighting. Both are pretty connected languages and both are native to India. See, this is an ongoing topic of... of, uh, uh, People keep fighting about this. I see this in the comments every day on my channel, in other places. And and there is this constant fight about which is the oldest language, which came first, which came later. And there is this very strong uh, Dravidianist feeling that Tamil is the oldest language in the history of humanity and so on. So I have been saying this from episode one of the Ask Abhijit show, stop fighting about this. It doesn't matter. We are all the same people. We have the same genetics, the same ancestry, the same culture, same everything. And yet the fight goes on and on and on and on. So, so let's address this. First of all, the, the this entire thing about the Dravidian linguistic family or whatever, that is a myth. So, see, the official version is that Sanskrit is part of the Indo-European language family, huh, apparently, and Tamil, Telugu, Kannada, Tulu, etc., are part of the so-called Dravidian language family. Hmm? And these two are different language families. The truth is that Sanskrit and Tamil have much more in common than Sanskrit and German, or Sanskrit and Latin, or Sanskrit and any other Indo-European, so-called Indo-European language. There is much more in common between Sanskrit and Tamil than between any Sanskrit and any other Euro- Indo-European language. There is much more in common between Marathi and Tamil, or Gujarati and Kannada, or or, or Hindi and and uh, Telugu, than between the Indian languages and the Indo so-called Indo-European languages. So these, all these. Presuppositions have to re, have to be re-examined a priori. We need to start to, to re-examine the linguistics of India a priori with, fresh, with a fresh perspective, from, with a fresh set of eyes from a scientific perspective, from a Paninian perspective, not from the Occidental Western perspective, not from the European perspective. So that's number one. I do not agree with this Indo-European language family nonsense and the Dravidian language family nonsense there is an Indian language family, and all languages are interrelated. Now the question of Telugu, is it older than Tamil? Let's take a look at what evidence we have. Is Telugu older than Tamil? So, let me share some of my, uh, some of some of these articles. Yes. So, this is an article from the Hindu. It is behind a paywall. I am not going to subscribe to them, but it says that Telugu is 2,400 years old, says the ASI. Okay. That is what the ASI says. It's from uh, article from the Hindu from the 2000, from 2007. Once again, this is the different article which also says that the ASI has determined that the what seems to be the oldest inscription in Telugu, in archaic ancient Telugu, in a, in a certain variant of the Brahmi script, is 2,400 years old. Okay, let's take one more article into consideration. Brahmi footprint triggers centuries-old Telugu enigma. So once again, it dates back to about 400 BCE. This is an article from the Times of India. Yes, so that's what we have and so on and so forth. So it's clear that the oldest evidence of Telugu dates back to about 2400 years before today. And it's in a place called Bhatti Prolu. Bhatti Prolu, it should be somewhere here. Yeah, the the village of Bhatti Prolu in Guntur district. Okay, 400 or so BCE. Now what is the oldest Tamil inscription that we have? I think it's not as as old as this. So this news of the Bhatti Prolu inscription came, uh, became uh, known in, I think, 2007 or so. right? And later on, there have been claims that have been made that Tamil is older than that, but I have yet to see the evidence. So the oldest evidence of Tamil dates back to about 200 BC or 300 BC. And the Bhatti Prolu Telugu inscription dates back to 400 BC. So from the hard archaeological evidence, it, it's clear that Telugu seems to be older than Tamil. Now, if you look at Tamil tradition, we have the, uh, the the Sangam tradition, the Sangam literature. There were three Sangam eras. Sangam era 1, Sangam era 2, Sangam era 3. The latest one, dates, which dates back to about 300 BC, is the third Sangam era, which is the historical Sangam era. And apparently there were two Sangam eras before that. And if you add up all the dates, it dates back to if 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 you are to believe what is said, it dates back to almost nine thousand or ten thousand BC. So that is the oral claim that is made that Tamil is that old, 9,000, 10,000 BC. You know what? One should not disregard these these uh, these oral traditions. It is possible that Tamil may be ten thousand years old. It is also possible that Telugu itself may be ten thousand years old. Now, so, so but the but the hard evidence that we have the oldest inscriptional evidence that we have anywhere in the world of telugu and tamil shows that telugu is older okay battiprolu 400 bc older than older than the oldest tamil inscription now when it comes to the actual uh, sanskrit versus other languages the, the that that controversy i have always said that let's not make a big fight of this we are all the same but if you really want to get into this Okay, if you really want to get into this matter of what is older, Tamil or Sanskrit or Telugu, uh, it's been established now that the oldest inscriptional evidence says that Telugu is older than Sanskrit. Now, if you want to do a Sanskrit versus Tamil thing, yeah, you want to do that? The oldest Tamil period is called what? A, the Sangam period? What does this word Sangam mean? Community? W- w- is Sangam a Tamil word? Unfortunately, it's a Sanskrit word. So the oldest Tamil period has a Sanskrit name, Sangam. What is the oldest Tamil literature? The Tolakapiyam. Yes? The oldest literary text available in the entirety of Tamil history. The Tolakapiyam. The word Tol means old or ancient. What does the word Kapiyam mean? Kapiyam? Kaviyam? Poem? Is that a Tamil word? It's a Sanskrit word. So the oldest Tamil era has a Sanskrit name, Sangam. The oldest Tamil literature is the told Kaviyam, which again has a Sanskrit name. So, you know, if you look at these things, different facts, uh, other facts come to light. I don't want to get into all this. I, I'm, I'm not in favor of these unnecessary and pointless fights. I'm sure the Tamil and Sanskrit emerged maybe in parallel. Maybe both are ancient languages. As far as we know, Sanskrit is the oldest language in humanity, in human history, oldest known language. Maybe Tamil is also that old, possibly. Maybe Telugu is older. The evidence that we have shows that Telugu seems to be older inscriptionally than Tamil, and if you look at the evidence from the Tamil names, from the Sangam literature name and Tolkaviyam, it's clear that, that Sanskrit may have come before Tamil. But we don't have hard evidence of these things. So my point is very simple. Let's stop fighting amongst each other. We are the same people. We are one civilization. If you look at Indian history of the past, let's say only 3000 years, you will see migrations within India. All across India, north to south, south to north, east to west. If you look at Sangam literature, they talk about lands north of the Himalayas. Yeah, Tamil literature. You talk. If you look at Sangam literature, it talks about the Vedas, about the Rishi Munis. Let's stop getting into all these unnecessary political fights. Politicians make people fight in order to gain something for themselves, and that's what we are seeing in the south, in the southern part of India, the Dravidian movement. They are trying to deny their own history, that's what's happening. So we need to stop fighting amongst each other, we need to work together and take our civilization forward. Right, that's all about this matter. Okay, Aman says, why were the first Indian military heads, army, navy, air force, even after India's independence, why were the British, why were the English? What sort of independence is this? Is it true? After 1947, the heads of the army, Indian army, Indian navy, Indian air force, were they British? Uh, Who was the first governor general of of independent India? It was that fellow, right? Mountbatten. Lord Mountbatten. Why was an Englishman the governor general of India after India became apparently independent? The first Governor General of Pakistan after 1947 was Muhammad Ali Jinnah. So why wasn't an Indian appointed as the Governor General of India instead of an Englishman? So yes, the first Governor General of India, of independent India, supposedly independent India, was an Englishman. Is that independence? Not quite. It doesn't look like independence to me. It doesn't sound like independence. Let's take a look at the Army, Navy, Air Force. Let's see if you can find a list of Indian... Heads of army and all that. Let's see. Let's take a look. We can certainly find that very very readily online. Let me share the screen. Here we are. List of Indian chiefs of army staff, 1947 to 2021. So let's see who we have. 1947, 15th August onwards, General Sir Robert Lockhart. That's not an Indian name. 48 to 49, General Sir Roy Bucher. So yes, it's clear that you had, even after 1947, you had two Englishmen who were at the head, who were at the head of the Indian army. Let's take a look at the Air Force, shall we? What do we have? List of Air Chief Marshals of India, 47 to21. 1947, 15th August, Sir Thomas Walker Elmhurst. Then Ronald Ivelow Chapman. 1950. 1951, Sir Gerald Ernest Gibbs. Yeah, until 1954. Good God, these are all Englishmen. Why was it so in an independent India? Let's take a look at the Navy, shall we? List of chiefs of the Naval Staff of India, 47 onwards. Uh, 15th August onwards, Rear Admiral John Talbot Savignac Hall. Then 48 to 48, Rear Admiral, the same guy. Then Vice Admiral William Edward Parry until 1951. Then until 1955, Sir Charles Thomas Mark Pisey, whoever the hell that is. Then 55 to 55, Mark Pisey, then Robert Stephen Hope Carlyle until 1958. So it is very clear that even after India's so-called independence, India had a foreign governor general and foreign chiefs of the army, navy and air force. Is that independence? That is why people ask the question, what really happened in 1947? On what terms did India gain its so-called independence? What changed after India's so-called independence? You still had British people at the heads of the Army, Navy and Air Force. You had a British Governor General. You had the same British institutions in India which still exist today. The Indian Penal Code dates back to 1860. Who wrote that? The British. Who wrote that? The infamous Lord Macaulay. Right? And that still exists today. The Indian Constitution is of foreign origin. What really, did India really become independent? That's the real question we have to ask ourselves. Are we really independent even today? What changed after independence? Did the education system change? Did did we get to learn the true history of India? No, we are still taught lies. Nothing has changed. India is still deeply, deeply and thoroughly colonized. And you can see that in me as well. So that's where we are. So good question. We need to introspect about these things. Okay, Dominic says, what if Sri Lanka today had a different, different neighboring country like the US, China or Russia in place of India? Would Sri Lanka still be independent today? Would these countries have taken a different approach towards Sri Lanka's crisis if they were in the place of India? This is an excellent question. What if, instead of India, Sri Lanka was the neighbor of the US or China or Russia in the 1940s? What would have happened then? You know, after India became independent, supposedly, um, India's ambassador to the USSR met the, the head of state, Mr. Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the USSR. Yes. And uh, they were looking at the map of India and all that. And Joseph Stalin pointed out a small island to the south of India. And he asked the Indian ambassador, "What is this? what is the name of this small Indian island? And the Indian ambassador said, this is not an Indian island. This is an independent nation, Sri Lanka. And Stalin said, why is it independent? And that's a a good question. Why was this small island right next to India independent? For what reason? Why was it not part of India? Mr. Stalin could not understand it for the life of himself. Right? Why was Sri Lanka kept separate from India? It was, it has always been part of India's in the Indian civilization. It was part of various Indian empires, the Chola Empire, and so on. Yeah, it's the same people, the same languages. Why is it an independent nation? So, if it was China instead of India, China would have immediately reabsorbed Sri Lanka and made Sri Lanka part of China. If, if it was the USSR instead of India, the USSR would have obviously absorbed Sri Lanka within itself, and the same would apply to the U.S. The U.S. is an expansionist hegemonic power. We know what they have done to Mexico. Texas was part of Mexico. California was part of Mexico. New Mexico was part of Mexico. The Americans fought wars with the the Mexicans and took away all these territories and so on and so forth. Yeah. So had it been another country instead of India that was next to Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka would not be independent today. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the answer. The, the current crisis is a whole different story. But historically, <laughs> Sri Lanka has been extremely lucky that it is an independent nation. And maybe not so lucky. I mean, see what happened. So yeah. Ronit says... You said that air aircraft carriers are obsolete in this age of modern warfare. However, isn't aircraft carrier important part of Blue Water Navy extending the range of attack for a country, using it against another country? As for their threat of submarines, can't a pair of anti-submarine corvettes be employed along the carriers and aircraft carriers can be protected by missiles by using anti-air missiles through VLS systems present in aircraft carriers itself? You know what? All nice and good hypothetically. When was the last time an aircraft carrier was attacked, was, was caught in open con- combat? When was the last time this happened? During the Vietnam War or, or in, the, in, the, in the run-up to the Vietnam War, it was an American aircraft carrier that had to face enemy fire. What happened? It was decimated and destroyed. After that, no aircraft carrier has actually come under enemy fire. Yeah. Aircraft carriers are nice when you have overwhelming superiority and no real uh, threats. For instance, let's look at a different platform. The so-called, um, not the so-called, the, the drones. The Americans have the Predator drone and the Reaper drone and all that, that, that loiter about 10 kilometers up in the sky. Nobody can see it, nobody can hear it. And, and they rain down missiles on terrorists and all that. They do it with impunity because they have they don't face any threat. If somebody had the wherewithal to fire an anti-aircraft missile at that that thing, it would not stand a chance. So there are certain weapon systems that work brilliantly when there is no threat to them. These drones, the Predator drone, the the Reaper drone, they don't stand a chance if an anti-aircraft missile is fired at them. So the Americans use them on nations where there is no such system of air defense. They use that in Afghanistan, in Pakistan. The Pakistanis allowed that. Had the Pakistanis fired anti-aircraft missiles at these, these drones, those drones would have been blown out of the sky. Similarly, when it comes to aircraft carriers, the last time an aircraft carrier came under fire was many, many decades ago. It is just a mathematical calculation of how to destroy an aircraft carrier. Yes, you can defend aircraft carriers with anti-missile missiles, yeah? You can have a whole ring of uh, destroyers around an aircraft carrier which carry these missiles and, and try to safeguard it. It's just a question of numbers. Let's say you have five destroyers. Each contains, each carries 50 missiles. That two, That's 250 missiles. So each of these missiles can, let's say take down an incoming missile, which means that if you fire 250 missiles at the aircraft carrier, those missiles will be intercepted and destroyed assuming 100% interception rate. So all you have to do to destroy the aircraft carrier is fire 251 missiles. It's just a mathematical calculation. That's all. Eventually, your missile defenses will run out. That's how it is. And not every nation can afford to have so many missiles in defense of an aircraft carrier and to, and to place so many destroyers in, uh, around in order to defend an aircraft carrier. And it's even easier to destroy an aircraft carrier with a nuke. All you have to do is detonate a nuke 10 kilometers away or 5 kilometers away, far away from the range of the incoming missiles. And the nuclear explosion will, will disable all the ships. It's so easy to take out an aircraft carrier, you have no idea aircraft carriers are massive slow moving lucrative targets i mean just imagine the the effect on a nation's morale if a 10 billion dollar aircraft carrier is destroyed it's such an in- incredibly large investment right and, and the Americans have aircraft carriers that, that cost 10 billion plus dollars. In the case of India, our aircraft carriers cost 4, 5 billion dollars. That's a huge amount of money. You can acquire 100 missile boats for the same cost. Each missile boat can have three missiles on it, Brahmos missiles. It's 300 missiles. And you can deploy it over a wide extent of the Indian Ocean. That's how you make the Indian Ocean your strategic backyard. Or you could acquire submarines for that cost. You can acquire a high-class submarine, high-quality submarine for $100 million. There are certain submarines that you can acquire for just $100 million. So you could acquire 40 or 50 submarines for the cost of one aircraft carrier. Just imagine how much lethality you're gaining for that. So I know people will not agree with me. People will say that I am an armchair general or whatever. You don't agree with me? Well, other people have said the same thing. On this channel, Dr. Edward Lutwak, one of the greatest geostrategists of all time, he came on this channel and he said the same thing, that the aircraft carrier is obsolete. That guy knows what he is talking about. He has seen action in wars. He has designed weapons. He has advised prime ministers and presidents in a variety of nations. He still does that actively. He knows what he is talking about. He came on this channel. He spoke with me for more than an hour. He said the same thing aircraft carriers are obsolete. The aircraft carrier was the principal ship of the 20th century. In the 21st century, the principal ship of any navy is the submarine. Submarines are far more dangerous. They are invisible, very hard to detect. And they can be lethal. And they can take out aircraft carriers. You, you, You can place... A nuclear warhead on a torpedo and detonate it one kilometer below an aircraft carrier. And just imagine what it will do to the aircraft carrier. So that's why I say this that aircraft carriers are obsolete. You can put as many arguments as, as you want. I can destroy all the arguments. We need to stop investing in these incredibly expensive white elephants. You know, learn the lessons from the Russia Ukraine conflict. Quantity has a quality of its own. Don't concentrate your lethality distribute your lethality widely that's what we need to do but unfortunately our planners our whoever it is is still stuck in the 20th century mindset i don't know what it it will take to change this maybe a war you know wars are not always bad things i'm i'm, I'm not a, in favor of wars but sometimes you need that to wake you up i don't know i i wish that there is no war ever but we need to wake up and we need to we need to enter and embrace the 21st century. Right now, we are still stuck in the 20th century mindset, unfortunately. Okay, Man Vashishta says, It is said that during World War I, Germany tried to send a message to the Mexicans in order to gain their support to fight the US, which was helping Britain at at the time. But the English intercepted the message and showed it to the president of the US, Woodrow Wilson, who after that officially declared war on Germany. Considering this, if the message had not been intercepted, do you think Mexico and Germany could have defeated the US? Because at that time, the US was not a great, powerful military power. It had only these many active and reserve military personnel combined. Okay, so it is alleged that the Germans during World War I sent a telegram or a message of some kind to the Mexicans, which was intercepted by the British, who passed it on to the Americans. The Germans were trying to instigate the Mexicans against the U.S., and they were proposing that the Germans and the Mexicans should should attack the U.S. jointly or something to that effect. And this was apparently the tipping point which induced the Americans to officially declare war on Germany, which eventually, over, at the end of the day, uh, contributed to the destruction of the German military campaign and the defeat of Germany. So that's what is said. Um, the thing is this, the Americans, after this happened, officially declared war on Germany, but they were already aiding the U.K., They were sending supplies to the UK, uh, weaponry, ammunition, tons and tons, hundreds, maybe thousands of tons of food supplies. That is the reason the British were able to hold out against the German attacks, right? Without this US aid which went on for years, the the UK, the the British would have have, uh, capitulated much earlier. They never capitulated, capitulated. Thanks to the Americans, thanks to American support. So even though the Americans had not officially declared war on Germany, they were aiding Germany's enemy, actively, repeatedly, and the Germans were aware of this. They had this wolf pack. They had these wolf pack. These these U-boats, Unter-Sea-boot, Unter right? Undersea boats, submarines, which were patrolling the Atlantic Ocean, which were taking down. Uh, U.S. shipping, which was aiding the U.K. The Americans protested, the Germans toned it down, but eventually the Americans uh, entered the fray. So we don't know what is the truth behind this. Maybe the Germans did ask the Mexicans to get involved in this, or proposed some kind of alliance. So let's say this message had not been intercepted. Do I think Mexico and Germany could have defeated the U.S.? Unlikely. The U.S. has an entire continent at their disposal. They have a much, even at that time, they had a much greater industrial base than the Mexicans. They had almost unlimited resources. Mexico was much smaller and much weaker than the US. So even if the Germans had joined hands with the Mexicans, it is un, it is unlikely that they would have made a significant dent on, on American, uh, on the US. Yeah. Uh, The Germans did consider attacking the U.S. from the sea. The German Navy was one of the most powerful navies in the world at the time. The Germans were pioneers of of, uh, submarine technology, undersea boat technology. So they had considered very seriously various scenarios in which they could attack the U.S. East Coast from the Atlantic Ocean. But even if they had done that, it would not have made much, much of a difference to the Americans because they have such strategic depth, the entire continent from coast to coast, east coast to west coast. And uh, I don't think the Mexicans were any match for the American military, even at that point. So, uh, So I think this was merely a pretext for the Americans to officially enter the war. Even after they declared war, it took them a few months to start to actually get involved. But yeah, it eventually led to the defeat of the Germans, so I don't think even if this message was not intercepted, even if the Mexicans agreed and attacked the US, I don't think it would have made, made much of a difference, it would have eventually led to Mexico losing more territory, that's all it, it would have uh, culminated in. Okay, two questions, Randhir says, please tell, please speak about the origin of the Mete people of Manipur, it is said they weren't Hindus earlier, it was King Pamaiba a.k.a. Uh, Garib Nawaz who introduced Hinduism, then what was the religion? And Lanchimba says, what's your take on the theory of Tangja Leela Pakhangba who ruled ancient Manipur from 1445 B.C. to whatever uh, is a descendant of the Tangshang dynasty? He is said by some historians that he is from Tangshab tribe. Uh, why did, if he is a descendant of this, this dynasty, why did his son write the rules of Sagal Gangja in Mithi, Mithi Okay. The question is about the origin of the Meitei people of Manipur. The Meitei people are the Manipuris, right? In the Manipur region, you have different tribes, and you you have the Meitei people who are not a tribe, who are a larger community. They have a history that that seems to date back at least three and a half thousand years. So they have a royal chronicle called the Chhai kumbaba which is a chronicle, a whole lineage of all the kings of the of 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 the Manipur region of, of Manipur, the Meitei kings. In one version, it dates back to about two thousand years before today. In another version, it dates back to three and a half thousand years before today. So fourteen fifty approximately BCE, right? And the uh, the originator of the Manipuri people is is the legendary Pakhangba, who is the snake king or the dragon king. He's depicted as a dragon in Manipur Manipuri heraldry and all that. So uh, he is believed to have ruled Manipur to about foreign... an uh, in about 1450 or so B.C. Yeah. So what is the truth behind this? Is he a descendant of the Tangshan dynasty or whatever? There is no, there is absolutely no evidence for that. Uh, there are various historians who make all kinds of ridiculous claims and it gets published and then it becomes like fact, you know, part of the existing literature. But what is the evidence that uh, Pakhangba was a part of so-and-so dynasty or, or X dynasty or Y dynasty? What is the evidence for that? There is zero evidence for that. Zero. There is no archaeological evidence for that. There is no literary evidence for that. Yeah. There is nothing in the literature of the Manipur people that says that Pakangba or his ancestors came from somewhere else. Nothing. So uh, there is zero evidence for this thing. Uh, what is Sagol Kangjai? It is Polo. Sagol Kangjai is the game of Polo which originated in Manipur who knows how many thousands of years ago. So maybe 2,000 years ago or maybe 3,500 years ago. So the origin of polo is in Manipur. It's not in Armenia or Azerbaijan or Turkey or Persia or whatever. It's in Manipur. It's the oldest game in this region. One of the oldest games, sports. The British came to India. They occupied Manipur, killed the king, hanged him, the general. And then they found the sport and they adopted the the sport and they, they started playing it. And it was the sport of the royalty and all that, polo. So, uh, and the other question is about the origin of the Meitei people. So we don't quite know what is the origin. They have been in the region, in the Manipur Valley region, the Imphal Valley region, and the overall larger region around that, around three and a half thousand years at least. Uh, one of the ways of knowing or or deducing the origin is to do genetic testing. And I don't think anybody has done any, any significant amount of serious testing uh, of the genetic lineages of the Manipuri people, so we don't know. If that happens in the future, we will have a better idea of what the migration routes were like. We all know that the history of the human species is a history of migrations. Mm -hmm. 70,000 years ago, the first humans came into this Indian subcontinent. And from there, they spread out to various places. So eventually, it all dates back to that. So the history of the Mete people in this region, in the far east of India, goes back at least 3,500 years ago so that is that is very ancient it's older than rome <laughs> it's older than greece yeah so i think the, the, that's that's old enough for us right what happened before that we can uh, try to deduce through genetic analysis uh what is the religion well the manipuris had their own religion their own sink, their own culture polytheistic culture it is now co- everything is an ism nowadays you know so it's called Sanamahism. Like Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Tengarism, Sosang Sanamahism, that sort of thing. So there, the original culture or religion of the Manipuri people is the worship of Sanamahi and uh, the entire pantheon of divinities that uh, around that there is also ancestor worship, there is nature worship and so much more. So it's just like any other polytheistic culture like Tengriism, Shinto, etc. In Japan, see, there are incredible parallels between uh, Sanamahism and Shinto. So Shinto is the original uh, culture or religion polytheistic belief system in Japan. Later on, Buddhism came into Japan. So so the, the Shinto belief system was more closer to Hinduism, than Buddhism, so they they the Japanese saw Buddhism as as kind of uh, you know a lightweight version version of what they already had. But eventually, Buddhism make, became a big thing in Japan. And today, what you have is a beautiful syncretic mixture of Shinto and Buddhism. That is the mainstream culture in Japan today, right? Similarly, uh, Hind what we call Hinduism, is a, it it became a thing during the time of uh, Parameba. About 300, 400 years before today. Uh, I don't remember the exact date. About 300 or so years before, years before today. So, this guy, Pamayba, took on this very strange name of Garib Nawaz, personate name. Yeah. And he adopted Gaudiya Vaishnavism as the official state uh, religion around this time. Yeah. So, even today in Manipur, Sanamahism isn't dead. People who practice Hinduism, Vaishnavism, they also practice Sanamahism. So it's 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 syncretized, just like Shinto and Buddhism syncretized with elements of Hinduism very much. Yeah, in Japan, the same way you have a a mixture, a syncretic admixture of of Sanamahism and Gaudiya Vaishnavism in Mani in Manipur today. So that's what it is. So that I hope explains the scenario in this manner. Alpha says, why are all tribals dark-skinned? So how do we define, I, I expect you're talking about the Indian subcontinent, how do we define a tribe? A tribe is a group, a small, reasonably small group of people that is isolated from the rest of humanity. That is a tribe. So why are all tribals dark-skinned? Is it is it true that all tribals are dark-skinned? Let's take a look at a certain, a certain tribe, shall we? Have you heard of the Kalash tribe? The Kalash tribe lives in Northwest India, which is currently part of Pakistan, temporarily for, us for a brief period of time. So the Kalash people are they they meet the definition of the of the term tribe. They have been isolated in the in the in the mountains of this region for a very long period of time. They hardly mixed with others, with, with outsiders. This is what they look like. And some people claim that they are the descendants of Greek people. Well, if you look at the people of Greece, they don't have blonde hair and blue or green eyes. The people of Greece have typically, on average, have light brown skin and dark hair and dark eyes. So, so these people, and if you these people, the the Kalash people, their genetic testing, I mean, uh, their genetic analysis has been done, and they are mostly of Indian origin. Yeah. So this is what Indian tribes look like, the the Kalash tribe. There are other tribes as well, Konyak. So in in northeast India, in Nagaland, you have the Konyak people. So this is what they look like. They're not quite dark-skinned, are they? Yeah. And we have other tribes as well. What about the Beel people? So the Beel people are classified as a scheduled tribe. They live in Central India, Western India, etc. Are they dark-skinned? Look at these ladies here. I think they're bill people. Look at these people here. Look at this lady. Some of them do have some somewhat darker skin. Some of them have fair skin. So, you know, it, it's, it's wrong to generalize things like this. Yeah? In India, you have all kinds of people with all kinds of different appearances. Light skin, dark skin. Even the so-called tribal people come in all varieties. Light skin people, dark skin people. There are some people who have darker skin and all and so on. But... You can't generalize in this manner, all right. So that's that's what I would like to say. Okay, Kuldeep says, um, are the Rigvedic Nagas and the present day Nagas the same people? I read somewhere that Ma that Maharashtra was the home of the Rigvedic Nagas. Am I missing something? Is it all unrelated? Is the name a coincidence and so on? Today's Nagas are the people of uh, the region which is of the state that is called Nagaland. Yes, and. Some regions around that, uh, these uh, Naga tribes people they also live east of the border in Myanmar, etc. Yeah, so, uh, the, those are the people of Nagaland. Now, there is this uh, mention of the Naga people from the Rig in the Rig Veda as well in the Mahabharata era and in, in the Ramayana era, etc. These are different peoples. The term Naga for the people of present day Nagaland is a very recent. Term. It was created very recently. I think it is the British occupiers of India who gave these tribes the the, the, this name of of Nagas. I don't know why they were called Nagas. Maybe see the British were racist people. They did not have a lot of respect for the people of India. So it is possible that they called these people Nagas before they, because possibly because they wore less clothes because of the climate. So Naga Nagna means naked, right? in, In Sanskrit. So maybe Naga means that, maybe that's why the British called them Nagas. The British were racist and disrespectful to Indians and this is possibly one of the examples of that. So, uh, the, the people of Nagaland were called Nagas in the 19th century. Before that, we don't know what they were called. I think in Manipur, the Meitei people called them the various How tribes, How. So that is the term that the Meitei people, the Manipuris had for the various tribes of this region. The uh, the Mao tribe, the the, the Maring tribe, and uh, various other tribes of, of present Nagaland. So all these people, all these various tribes lived in differ- different parts of this region. Many of them spoke different languages. They all had their own beautiful indigenous culture that has been stamped out totally. So these are not the Rigvedic Naga people. Right? The, the, the Rigvedic Naga people were a whole different people. We don't know who, who they were. I'm not sure if if Maharashtra, present-day Maharashtra was the home of these people. We, I'm, I'm not sure about that. So I think uh, uh, who they were is still a mystery. And obviously, if they existed many thousand years ago, then most Indians today would have some of some ancestry from them as well. So yeah, that that's what it is. So present-day Nagaland is not the same as the people of the Rig Veda, Nagal. It's, it's, it's totally different and totally unrelated. Shruti says, uh, thank you. Uh, please let us know the list of books and resources needed to start learning world history. <laughs> uh, how did I start learning world history? Uh, there is this series of books by Will and Ariel Durant called The Story of Civilization i think it's a 12 set book 12 volume book set i think if i'm not mistaken maybe 10 maybe 12 it's a big uh, bunch of books the story of civilization by will and ariel durant it's an old uh, publication it's a, i think the last uh the last version the last book among the set was published i think in 19 in the 1970s so you could consider it to be somewhat outdated but history is history mm-hmm. so that's one of the first resources i had at my disposal so maybe you could start there it's it's quite voluminous but it's, it's 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 great for learning history and i think it may be kind of out of print or if it is available for purchase it may be very expensive but i would say that if you are reasonably resourceful you be, you must be you should be able to acquire you should be able to get your hands on these books so i could recommend the story of civilization for world history yeah And also the story of World History by by H.G. Wells, which was written a very long time ago. And yet it's a good book. So so that's a couple of recommendations I would make. But overall, I would say read everything you can. You read everything you can get your hands on and give yourself 10 years. It's not something you can do in a couple of weeks. There are no shortcuts to learning world, world history. It's a work in progress. I am still learning world history. There's still a lot for me to learn. So yeah, so I can give you a couple of recommendations and the overall larger recommendation I would, I would give is to read as much as you can. Read everything you can and slowly, slowly you will develop um, more and more knowledge. Okay, all the best. GS Sai says, you mentioned about RRR. We did not get to know whether you watched it. We want you to see and enjoy it as much as we enjoyed it. I have watched it. I did not watch it in a theater. I missed it. I typically don't watch movies much these days, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's Indian movies, because even Hollywood has become garbage nowadays, the multiverse of misery and whatnot. And Bollywood is like beyond repair. And even other uh, parts of uh, other 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 woods, <laughs> Tollywood, Gollywood, whatever it is, I don't really watch it. But so so that's why I missed RRR when it was out there in the in the in the cinemas. But then I heard good things about it. So I watched it online and I think it's a brilliant movie, great movie. I think Bahubali was, I, I've seen Bahubali part two in a, on the big screen. It was, I think, more enjoyable than RRR, but RRR is also a very nice movie. I think it's caught on in the US for some reason. The, the West has discovered this movie and, and they are they seem to be very, very enthusiastic about it. So yeah, it, it's good to see that and uh, i think it's a it's a very nice movie very enjoyable movie the biggest sin a movie can make is to bore the audience is to bore the viewer and rrr does not do that it's a nice fast paced movie it doesn't bore you even once it it keeps moving along it's got a very clear storyline the protagonists know what they want and the antagonist also knows what he uh, what they want so it's very clear the conflict is very clear very nice storytelling Good action, a little bit over the top, but that's fine. That's fine. So very entertaining; doesn't bore you at all. Good movie. I liked it. I loved it. Ice Cube says your views on the film rocketry. Okay, before I answer this, let me say that uh, it's good that this movie was made. Uh, we now, by now, know that uh, Doctor Nambi Narayan was was unfairly targeted. He was victimized. And uh, it was all a political conspiracy of some kind. and it's good that this has been recognized that he has been rehabilitated, he has been honored by the Indian government. He was offered uh, he I don't know which award he got, but he got the award at the hands of the President of India. So it's really good that he has been honored. his reputation has been uh, has been restored. Uh, the, the government in a way has apologized to what happened to him for what happened by giving him this honor. And all that, so it's it's really good that uh, he got some justice. I'm really glad to see that, and I'm glad they've made a movie about him. Okay, so that's what I'll say in the beginning. Now I did watch the movie. It was not a well-made movie, not a great movie. Um, extremely long, drawn-out movie. It it kind they try to depict him as some kind of a James Bond figure. The guy is an engineer, a rocket scientist. He's not a James Bond. They have tried to depict him at the heart of every single advance that happened in Indian, in in Israel. He was at the forefront of everything. He was kind of a James Bond figure who got technology from different countries in a very stealthy manner. Come on, make it factual. And it's a very long, drawn out, very boring movie, unfortunately. Right, so I'm talking about the movie. The movie, the movie isn't great. I do not like it. I, I, I know I'm, I'm going to get some hate for this, for what I'm saying, because people seem to have loved the movie. Uh, it plays on your emotions. Indians are a very emotional people, so maybe it makes sense from that perspective. I did not enjoy the movie, but I am glad the movie has been made. I mean, how many rocket launches have they shown in the movie? One in the beginning and that's it. So why did they name the movie Rocketry? So um, just a little bit of nitpicking. Overall, I'm glad they made a movie in which they have shown at least the fact that Dr. Nambi was victimized. Unfairly, unjustly, complete lies and i am also very glad that he has been honored by the government of india so all that is good the movie itself is nothing to write home about very i found it boring and if somebody is offended by that by that i mean no i mean no disrespect to anybody whatsoever i have the highest of regard for dr Nambi Narayan and his contribution to the cause of the nation that's it Herschel says to improve relations we must marry French, Russian, and Israeli women. Every individual has a role in nation playing, you know. So, um, I, you know, I am I'm, I'm really glad to see that people are willing to to put nation above self, and uh, and uh, to 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 play their own uh, to to play a role in in geopolitics in an individual manner. I'm glad to see that people are willing to stand up and and take some responsibility for the advancement of the nation and and make this great sacrifice of marrying a foreigner for the good for the good of the country so i'm glad to see that i'm i'm um it's a good thing yes i i wish you harshal all the best so if there are any any eligible young ladies from these nations france russia israel etc who are watching uh, please note that uh, this young man harshal <laughs> is is, is willing to marry one of you. So go ahead. Let's do some matchmaking. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that brings me to the, to the end of today's uh, questions. Let us take a few questions from the live chat. If there are any, you have questions, ask me a few right now. Ask me interesting questions, please. All right. I will take a few for a few minutes. Why does our national anthem have Sindh in it, which is in Pakistan? should we remove it? Au contraire, my friend, au contraire. We should keep Sindh in the national anthem and we should reacquire Sindh when the time is right. When the time is right. What is next? Is being neutral beneficial for India? No, India is not neutral. India is on the side of India. And whoever else is willing to help us acquire uh, help us further our national interest. India is not neutral. India is not non-aligned. Today's journalists and news readers, etc., they will try and portray India as non-aligned. Even today, that is a lie. India is not non-aligned. India is multi-aligned. And India's alignment is towards its own national interest. So whoever is going to help us achieve our long-term objectives, we're going to go along with them. So India is by no means neutral. Okay, what else do we have? Um, do we have any other interesting questions? Is it okay for India to still be in the Commonwealth? Yeah, we have this uh, sporting event that's going on right now, the Commonwealth Games. You know, so what is the Commonwealth? It is a group of losers, a bunch of nations that were once ruled by the British. That is the Commonwealth the so-called Commonwealth of Nations. The thing is that even the U.S. was ruled by the British. The U.S. is not a member of the Commonwealth. They, don't, they, are not, they are not interested in being a member of this club of losers. So India is still part of this Commonwealth. It is a legacy of the Nehruvian era. Mr. Nehru was very much fond of, of all these things. Yeah. So it is a legacy of that era. Now today maybe it it's it, it is beneficial in some ways to be part of this grouping of nations and maybe we can use it to our benefit so so maybe that's why we are still part of it eventually when the time is that we may we may remove ourselves from the from this grouping so i think right now it, it doesn't make much of a difference whether we are part of it or not as long as we have our own independent foreign policy as long as we rise above the other nations and we leave britain behind in the dust yeah you do that it's fine All right, all right, all right. Do we have any question, other questions? My parents want me to become a chartered accountant, but after watching your videos, I found my interest in physics and mathematics. Should I follow my dream or should I first become financially independent? We, uh, one must be practical in life. Yeah, I don't know at what stage in your studies you are. Most likely you've already been preparing at, at, at some level for becoming a CA. The most important thing in life is to be practical. First, become financially independent, then pursue your other dreams. That is the the advice I would give to everybody. Never ever be idealistic. If you are financially independent, then nobody can control you. So once you achieve that, you have all the time in the world. Let's say you become financially independent at the age of 25, 30. You have 70 years left after that. Follow your dreams after that. So always be practical. Always achieve financial independence so that no one can control you. Even your near and dear ones may want to control you in some way or the other. You know, that's how life works. So become financially independent and then for pursue your dreams if you want to. That is the generic advice I would give to everybody. All right. Um, do we have other questions that I have not taken before. Mayom Sanjoy, Manipur Annexation and Coercive Merger Agreement. It is quite possible that, see, Mr. Patel, Sardar Patel, it, he took it upon himself to unify the nation. After uh, the so-called independence of India. So when India became uh, independence, India was just a bunch of princely states, all the puppet regimes that the British had installed in various parts of India. In Manipur, you had one such puppet regime. In 1891, the British annexed Manipur after defeating the Manipuri uh, army in war. They hanged the crown prince and the, 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 the number one general in Manipur and they installed a puppet government and a puppet king who was tangentially related to the royal dynasty of Manipur. And if you look at the royal family of Manipur today, which still exists, they are a descendant, they are descendants of this puppet king, not the true king of Manipur. Yeah, So when Mr. Patel went about the nation, uh, persuading the various princely states to become part of the Union of India, there, have, there are most likely instances in which he had to use certain t- tactics. Maybe he coerced some of them. So Mr. Patel had the full might of the Indian state at his disposal. He had the might of the Indian armed forces at his disposal. So it so these princely states they had essentially no option but to sign on the dotted line. If L, and if they would not do it, there would be consequences. So possibly some of them would have had a gun pointed at their head. That's possible. It's possible. And Mr. Patel did that for the benefit of the nation, to reunify the nation. For the benefit of Mr. Nehru and and overall long-term interests of India. So it is alleged that this sort of thing happened in Manipur. That the king of Manipur, the puppet king of Manipur, was forced to sign the accession document to India. It is possible. We don't have evidence for or against, but many people have made this claim. Do I know what happened? I don't know what happened. Is it possible that the king was forced to sign that against his will? It is possible. That's just how... Life works. Imagine if Manipur had become independent, what would have happened? It would have anyway been dependent on on, on India because it's a landlocked place. Uh, we know what happened subsequently. The entire far east of India, northeast of India, was neglected, marginalised. There was no development there. There was there was so much insurgency, drug abuse, all that. We know, we know what the Nehruvian regime and subsequent regimes did. Now things are different, and I'm glad to see that. And so so yeah. So it's possible that uh, some such thing may have happened, but that is how the world works. We have to make the best of where we are. Okay, do we have any other questions that I could take? Um, okay, I think, I think we're done for today. We have crossed the two-hour mark. So we're going to call it a day here. All of you Once again, thank you very much for all the questions. Always, always fun to answer your questions. And let us keep doing this. All right. So I will see you in the next episode next week. Until that time, take care. Keep asking questions. And I will see you soon. Take care. Good night. Good day.